I'd invite you this last uh, Sunday of 2020 to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 1, verse 6. It's a small book. You might pass over it quickly as you flip through your pages. Right there after uh, Ephesians and before Colossians, uh, the letter of Paul to the Philippians will be in just one verse this morning, chapter 1, verse 6. I don't believe that anyone is going to soon forget the year that we have just been through, the year 2020. Uh, Those two numbers, or that one number, will uh, regularly call to mind all sorts of memories, thoughts, emotions. This year will certainly go down as one of the weirdest, hardest, most devastating and frustrating years in the modern era. Think about all that we've been through, all the world has been through in the last year. As 2020 started... Australia was experiencing unprecedented wildfires that threatened much of that continent nation. Not long after that, horror of horrors, the 49ers lost the Super Bowl to the Kansas City Chiefs. Shortly after that, and more seriously, Kobe Bryant and his older daughter were killed in a helicopter crash in L.A. Not long after that, impeachment proceedings were begun against President Trump. The novel coronavirus and its infection, COVID-19, was identified in the United States. In mid-March, two weeks to slow the spread turned into the last nine months of lockdowns, gathering restrictions, and public health orders. Race relations in our nation took center stage again after the killing of the unarmed jogger Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, Breonna Taylor in Louisville during a no-knock raid that was executed by police there, and then George Floyd as he was being held under arrest in Minneapolis. There was a hotly contested, frustration-inducing presidential election that took place in November but felt like it had been happening for the last 15 years. (laughs) It was ultimately won by Joe Biden. And then you had all of the polarized reactions to Donald Trump's one-term presidency. On the one hand, joy and adulation that it was over. On the other hand, fear and frustration that something was changing. Two COVID vaccines were released earlier this month just some good news, marking the fastest that any such process had ever been completed. But still, in the midst of all of it, people lost their jobs, closed their businesses, put off having children, secluded themselves from family, from church, from social life. Suicide and depression rates are up almost exponentially this year. And at the end of the year, church, business, and education leaders are all stymied about what the future may hold. Oh yeah, don't forget, murder hornets. All of that in one year is enough to make anyone want to quit. That's a lot to endure for a people. It's a lot to endure for the world. It's a lot to endure for a church. It's enough to make anybody want to just say, that's it, I'm done. But I stand before you at the end of a long and difficult year to say that even as much as we may have wanted to quit over the last year, that God always finishes what He starts that God never quits on anything that He begins. We turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians today to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to finish what He starts. Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able? As we read this one verse together, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, would you read it aloud with me from the screen? Paul says this, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
The letter to the church in Philippi was written by Paul probably between the years of 60 and 62 A.D. Paul was at the time in prison for preaching the gospel. He had just received some assistance from one of the Philippian church members during his imprisonment, bringing him some supplies, caring for his needs while there in prison. The Philippian church itself was started by Paul in the home of a woman named Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth, a woman of of some considerable economic means. Paul and his missionary partner Silas were shortly thereafter imprisoned in the city of Philippi for casting a demon out of a slave girl there. The church at Philippi was the first Christian church founded by Paul on the continent of Europe. It was one of his most beloved churches, a place of great ministry success for Paul and great success for the gospel in the Roman Empire. As he now, toward the end of his life, looking likely forward to his death as he's imprisoned again between 60 and 62 A.D., is writing a letter to the church in Philippi, one, to thank them for their gift, but more to encourage them. The overwhelming tone of the letter to the Philippians is that of encouragement for God's people in that city. Specifically, he's encouraging them to live out their calling, to fill their lives with the hope and the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to do everything to bring glory to God's name and to exalt the name of Jesus. And that encouraging tone begins early on as Paul sets that tone for us here in verse 6 of chapter 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does Paul want us to recognize, to see, even just in this short sentence? Well, first of all, he wants us to see the worker, the one who is doing this work. The worker is not himself, Paul, but Paul pointing beyond himself to the the subject, really, of his encouragement, who is God. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, the one who began the work, is God. It's not Paul, even though he's God's tool for sharing the gospel, for taking the gospel to places, Paul is not the one that started this work. God is, the sovereign God of the universe who wills and works salvation in the lives of people. He's the one who is working. Paul calls us also not just to the worker who is God, but also to the work that has begun. And the work that has begun is that work of salvation, that work of being brought from death to life, from darkness to light, as the Philippians have heard the gospel, the good news that Jesus the Christ died for their sins and was raised again. As they have placed faith in Jesus Christ, God has begun this work of salvation in them. Paul wants the Philippians to know that the worker is doing the work, that God, who began salvation, will bring it to completion. And there he points to God's commitment to this process. I am confident of this. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion. God will be faithful to complete the salvation of those that he has saved. Here's this very good news that salvation has not only past and future implications, but present ones as well. In Christ, by faith in Jesus, we are saved We are being saved, and we will certainly be saved. In this sense, our salvation has past implications in that the moment that we placed faith in Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, repented of sin, and entrusted ourselves to Him, we were at that moment saved from sin. God counted us forensically righteous, justified, 
to him because of who Christ has done. And we also look forward to the future, a future day when God will complete our salvation, where we will be raised from the dead to live eternally in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. But there are also present implications for salvation. We have been saved, we will be saved, but we are also, friends, being saved. Salvation is working itself out in us now. Hear what Paul says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, but in which you stand, present tense, and by which you are being saved, present tense, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. God has done a work in salvation. He will complete that work of salvation, but he's also completing presently that work of salvation in us. Paul says, I'm sure of this, I'm confident of this, that he, the worker who began a good work in you, will be committed, will be faithful. He will bring it to its proper end point, its completion. When? In his timing, at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to know that God's timing is different from ours. God's timing is according to him and his sovereign plan and and goal. The day of Jesus Christ that Paul refers to here is nothing short of a reference to the end of days, to that last day of human history when Christ will return to the earth just as he ascended from it after his resurrection. And on that last day, he will call all the faithful. He will call all of those who are saved by God's grace through faith in him. He will call them to himself. He will raise the dead in Christ and glorified bodies. He will judge the living and the dead and he will inaugurate his eternal, perfect Never-ending reign in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the day of Jesus Christ means. But the very fact that it's been some 2,000 years since Christ ascended to the heavens and has not yet returned means that God is still working on our salvation, working out our salvation. He is still completing that work that He began in us. He is still working, dear friend, on your sanctification today, your holiness, your purity, your growth in the character of Christ. We look back on a year full of hardship, of tragedy, frustration, and often we struggle to see the hand and the work of God in all that has taken place this year because, let's be honest, we too often have a wrong-headed perception of how God completes our salvation. We much would rather to be saved that moment of faith And then for everything to just be easy after that. For God to just start and complete salvation all in one moment. And the time of frustration, the time of difficulty, the time of hardship in between that moment of our first faith and that that last day of our resurrection sometimes is irritating to us because we misunderstand or fail to see what God is doing in the time in between. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How is God going to do that? What is God's process for completing our sanctification, for making us ready for resurrection and eternal life? The process that God uses is that of sanctification, which means being made holy, being made in the image of Christ. Hear what Paul says later in this letter to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, from the moment of your first faith till the last day where you will be raised from the dead with Christ, there is work to be done in the in-between. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Flesh out salvation in your life. Bring the gospel to bear on every circumstance and scenario and every sphere of influence in your life. Let the gospel fill up every nook and cranny of your heart and your soul. And lest you think that you can do all of this work on your own, Paul says in verse 13, that even as we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, that it is God, the worker, who started the work. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The process of sanctification, dear friends, is not what I would put on the list of things that I would call fun. Neither is it easy. In fact, it's rather difficult. It's rather painful. It feels often like suffering. But this is the truth of how God works holiness in us. This is the truth of how God completes the work of salvation, that He sanctifies us through difficulty. And the regular truth of the New Testament for Christians is that there is no sanctification, there is no purification without fire, and there is no growth without pain. Sanctification is a difficult process. God did not call us to faith in Christ and to salvation to live lives of ease and comfort. He has called us to be made holy. We follow Jesus by taking up our cross and following Him, by denying ourselves to walk after Jesus. And if the path that Jesus trod is one that goes directly to the cross through suffering, how ought we to expect God to do any less in making us into the character of Jesus than to take us through similar things. This morning I was reminded of the the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. You probably know the first verse. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? But I found that in Baptist hymnals, there are only four verses (laughs) to this song. But in a version of it that I was listening to earlier this morning, there was a third verse that I'd never heard before. Listen to it. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you the deepest distress. Verse 4, you may know. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flames shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. God sanctifies His people through suffering. He develops holiness in us through pain, through hardship, through seasons of difficulty and challenge, years like 2020. So now at the end of 2020, looking forward to what's next, not looking backward to what was, we can't go back to change the past, but looking forward to what lies ahead, The question to us today, knowing that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ, the question for us as a church and as Christians is this, how will we receive God's sanctifying, salvation, completing work in us? How will we receive hardship? How will we receive suffering? How will we receive challenge in the year ahead, knowing that it is how God is completing his work in us? The truth from Scripture remains that God will complete our salvation. He always finishes what He starts. Now hear me this morning. I I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. 
God does all that he wishes apart from any resistance by others. He starts our salvation and he finishes our salvation. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He rules and reigns in spite of all resistance against him. But friends, I also believe, as I see the Bible often showing us, that the extent to which we see and experience and flesh out the saving work of God in our lives, the, the, the level of our spiritual maturity, the, the depth of our discipleship, the extent of our boldness with the gospel, our effectiveness to fulfill our mission of making disciples of Jesus, even the very future of a church that continues to meet in this location, the extent to which we see the saving work of a sovereign God unfold in us has also to do with our willingness to walk through the purifying fire of sanctification, to repent of sin and to pursue holiness to be stretched beyond our own abilities, to do by God's power what we cannot do on our own, to be pushed by God to the point of failure so that we grow stronger in His grace and by His grace. God is sovereign. He will complete our salvation. But He also asks us to walk alongside Him, to trust Him as He takes us through difficult things to purify and to sanctify us. And I believe that our level of sanctification, our, our, the, the depth of our, our discipleship, as I said, depends not just upon a sovereign God to do it, and He will, but the extent to which we see those things flesh itself out in our life has to do with how, how willingly, how obediently, how faithfully we go with God through those things. There's a time in my life where I was somewhat committed to physical fitness, uh, usually mostly during my uh, college years. Spent a lot of time in the gym. But for all the hours that I spent in the gym lifting weights, and I say this with some shame, <laughs> I've never been able to bench press more than about 215 to 225 pounds, one time max. Just never. Never have been able to. Part of the reason that I was never able to lift more than that was because I often went to the gym by myself. I'm kind of an introvert. I like time alone. I like quiet time, not being bothered by other people. So it was fine for me to go to the gym where other people were, but I didn't have to talk to them, work out, and go home. But because I worked out by myself, never worked out with a spotter, I never tried to lift more weight than I knew that I safely could. I never put more plates on the barbell, either at the squat rack or at the bench, than I knew that, than I, knew that I could get up uh, and, and finish the reps with on my own. And I never tried to do, even if I even I've maybe tried to push the weight a little bit one day, I never tried to do more reps than I knew I could safely do. If I was going to load up on the weights and do three sets of eight instead of three sets of ten, and I got on that last set and I got to number six and I was kind of shaky getting number six up, I wouldn't try for seven or eight. I'd just put it up and call it good. Now, kinesiologists and, and physiologists will tell you that the way you grow stronger is by pushing yourself to failure. The way you get stronger is by failing. And what happens when you get to the bench or you get to the squat rack and you fail to complete a repetition, what happens is that in your muscles, tiny micro tears take place. You're, you're actually tearing your muscles, destroying muscle when you fail to do a repetition. But those micro tears heal over time, and as they heal, they add muscle mass and they add muscle strength. They increase your, uh, the ability for your muscles to contract and get the work done. So in by, by, by pushing yourself to failure, you're actually working to make yourself stronger, but not me. I always did what I knew I could do and do safely without the help of another. 
And because of it, I was always hindered, always plateaued. I never, never broke through that strength barrier. We have as Christians at the end of this year two ways of looking at all that has gone on in the world and in our lives over the course of the last several months. We can, on the one hand, look on this last year as a time of pain and hardship and frustration where sin and Satan and evil persons were thwarting the will of God, disrupting the status quo, messing with all the good things that we had figured out for ourselves. Or we can look over the last year of challenge and hardship and suffering and pain as a sovereign God throwing more weight on the barbell of our faith, intentionally allowing challenges and pain to cause us to falter in new and confusing situations so that we would have to work the muscles of our faith in new and confusing ways all the way to the point of failure so that we would cry out to our divine God who not only pushes us farther than we want to go, but who stands ready to lift our burden and to complete the work He knew we could not finish in our own strength. The year ahead, dear friends, will require more growth. It will require more stretching. It will require more discomfort, more weight than we think we can bear at times. And certainly more faith in God to sanctify us as He completes the good work of salvation that He has begun in us. I really do wish in all of my selfishness as a human being that after this year, we could just take some time off from the sanctifying work of God in us because it hurts. God, I just want one day off. After all this year of sanctifying pressure in my life and in the life of the church, after all that you've been doing to purify me, to press me into the character of Jesus, just give me a day off. But the truth is, friends, that would be patently foolish. It would be spiritually stunting. And in terms of faith, a day off would be fruitless. We could, on the one hand, take all the present and future challenges of ministry and set them on a shelf, much like we've had to do with with some things over the course of this year, waiting for the air to clear and waiting for things to get back to some sense of quote-unquote normal. But that itself would be pointless. And it would ultimately be to our harm to just put it up until things get back to where they used to be. It would be the equivalent of saying, well, you know what? The air conditioning is broken at the gym, and I'm not sure when it'll be up and running again, though I'm sure that it will. So until then, I'm just not going to exercise at all. Then when the gym gets their air conditioning fixed, I'll go right back to running six miles a day on the treadmill, bench pressing 200 pounds, no big deal. Folks, that is no way to maintain fitness. Putting ministry on the shelf, putting life in Christ, the work of the gospel on the shelf until things go back to some sense of normal that we can't even guarantee, we only serve to make ourselves spiritually immature, ministerially weak, and irrelevant to those who are in real need. Putting it on a shelf is not an option for us. Because he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it as he sanctifies us. We need to learn to run on new trails, to swing kettlebells instead of lifting weights, to exercise ministry in new ways that are totally faithful to the gospel that we always preach, never departing from it. God, help us if we do. But in new ways that are also challenging to the patterns that we have been accustomed to over the last several years as a church and as believers. As your lead pastor, I'll shoot straight with you. I see the next year ahead as being rather difficult, not unlike the one that we've just about completed. As a church, we're going to have to adapt to do ministry in a post-COVID age. 
We're going to have to care for each other in more personal ways, maybe than perhaps we were used to or comfortable doing. We're going to have to work out new strategies for evangelizing our neighbors and doing gospel work in the world. We'll need to train up new leaders who will teach and serve and lead in the church. We'll have to have hard, not bad, but hard conversations about how best to steward all that God has given us as a church. We'll have to pray harder, listen longer to God's guidance and for his wisdom in all of these things, I am certain. And as we do this, we will bring glory to God as he does the very hard but very good work of making us more like Jesus. I'm confident, Paul says, that God will always finish what he has started, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Thirty years ago, God began a good thing in this body when a few families banded together to become a church, then Taylor Ranch Baptist Church, to, to commit to bringing glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, on March 22nd I had, of this past year, I had planned to preach Philippians 1, verse 6, as we were to celebrate our 30th anniversary together as a church. And as God would have it, March 22nd was the first Sunday that we did not meet in person for about three months because of COVID. But God began a good thing in this body of believers when he brought families together to become a church to do the work of making disciples. And friend, I stand before you today confident to say that God will complete that work which he started. The question for us, brothers and sisters is whether we will press on together to be stretched, to be changed, to be strengthened further by our Almighty God through all of the challenge and all the difficulty that may lie in the year ahead and to love Him more for it all the way. That's the challenge for us today. It's one thing to say, yeah, God will complete it, but I'm not going to do the hard stuff. No, God completes His work through the hard stuff. God brings us to the point of completed salvation. He brings us to the point of maximum effectiveness as a church through difficulty. Because of challenge, with suffering, will we follow Him and love Him more for it all the way. This last year has been incredibly hard for all of us in different ways. Um, It's been especially difficult uh, for my family uh, in a way that we had not anticipated prior to 2020. For uh, uh, as long as Nikki and I, my, my wife and I, had been um, together, even, even when we were dating before we were married, we talked often and regularly about fostering and or adopting uh, a child or children in, in our life together. And we celebrated 11 years of marriage this year in June, and up to that point we Fostering and adopting had only been a a topic of of conversation from time to time. We bought a house with an extra room, extra bedroom that we could use for that purpose, but still we hadn't filled it with anyone. To be honest with you, if it were up to me in July of 2020 with all that was going on in the world, and Nikki had come to me and said, hey, um, we need to really think about fostering and adopting. We, we, we've got to get on that right now. I probably would have said, you know what? 2020 is kind of a bust of a year. Can we, can we just wait till the next year? Let's just wait till things calm down. Let's just get through this. But God in his sovereignty sought fit to put our family through a difficult, painful, 
stretching and sanctifying experience by bringing our son to come live with us in July, in the middle of 2020 of all the years. We hadn't planned on it. We'd been talking about it. It was always kind of in the background that we would do this, but we certainly hadn't planned on doing it in 2020. And yet God in his sovereignty said, nope, this is what you get this year, Stephen. This is my gift to you. And sometimes, friends, it has not felt like a gift. And I say nothing about, that's to say nothing about our, our son and his worth before God and his value to us. But the process of adding another member to our family, uh, a boy in the midst of a bunch of girls, uh, an 18-month-old, when we had already gone well past potty training and all of those other things with the other girls, it was hard, really hard. And over the last six months since our son has been in our house, and, and God willing, he'll, he'll be in our house another six months and perfectly many more years as God allows. But over the last six months, through the process of adding another child to our home that we are not planning on, God and His sovereignty has brought a whole lot of stuff up to the surface in my life that I really, to be honest, would rather not have dealt with this year. He's shown me my, my sinful tendencies toward anger and short temper. He's shown me that I'm still not particularly compassionate to those who are vulnerable in the way that I ought to be, not like Christ. He's shown me my impatience. He's, he's shown me how quickly I, I get frustrated when things don't go my way. He has shown me a lot of things about myself that I don't like. And to be honest, if you saw it in the fullness of transparency in me, you wouldn't like either. But at the same time, as he's brought all this stuff up from the bottom of my heart and showed me the ugliness of it, the pain of it, the frustration that, that comes with everything all along the way, he has also pointed me to Jesus. Jesus who lives by the strength of his conviction, challenging those who are unrighteous and impatient or self-righteous and presumptuous and also in compassion going to those who are hurting, who are weak, who are vulnerable, and lifting them up. And all through this process of having our son in our house, God has been saying, Stephen, there's, there's still work in your life to be done. There's still a character of Christ that I'm completing in you. And all of the hardness of the last six months, even though you didn't ask for it, was my plan to work you, to mold you into the shape of Jesus I would love to be able to say I have enjoyed the last six months of sanctification in my life. I would love to be able to say I'm looking forward to six more months, 20 more years of it. Because certainly, I, listen, I know the level of, uh, of sin that still lies in my heart. I know that it's not going to be six more months before all of that is sanctified out of me. I would love to say I'm looking forward to it, but to be honest, I'm not looking forward to the process but I am looking forward to the result. I am looking forward to being a more Christ-like father and husband and pastor and leader because of what God has put me through this year. The year ahead of us as individuals and as a church is going to be full of challenges like that, some greater, some different. 
The question for us at the end of this year is, brothers and sisters, will we press on to be stretched by God, to be changed by God, to be strengthened further by God, and to love Him more for it all the way? There is no purification without fire. There is no growth without pain. And God purifies and grows His people through hardship, through suffering, through challenge that we would not have planned for ourselves. Dear friend, much of this talk of challenge and weight and sanctification through hardship may seem to you this morning overwhelming and disorienting. It may be that you sense a weight on your life that is not the sort that is meant to strengthen you, but rather is a heavy burden that you know you cannot in your own power lift. Pain of broken relationships, the weight of eternal uncertainty, the insecurity that comes with your awareness of your sin, the hurt of addiction, the loneliness of isolation or abuse, the never-lessening encumbrance of trying to be good enough. In all that weighs you down in life, you cannot see that any of it is helpful or that any of it would lead to God. You are broken, you are weary, you are heavy laden by these things. To you this morning, I say that the same God who sanctifies his people through hardship also stands ready to lift you from the burden of your brokenness. As we read and began our worship this morning, Jesus himself said to those who are around him, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Coming to Jesus as Lord, turning from yourself to give your whole self to him with faith and trust will not remove hardship. It won't make all the hard things go away. And to be honest with you, any gospel that tells you that it will is a false one and a lie from the pit of hell. But what coming to Christ as Lord by faith will do is that it will dramatically transform those hardships from burdens that destroy to the means of grace that God will use to make you more like His Son. The yoke and the burden of Jesus is one of self-denial. It's an end to self-worship and the beginning of right worship. It's an end to the guilt for sin and the beginning of forgiveness and joy. It's an end to destructive cycles of addiction and relationship seeking and a beginning to reconciliation and restoration. It's an end to spiritual futility and the beginning of abundant life. I will not lie to you this morning, friend. It is hard to be a Christian. But the joy of knowing and being known by God The joy of living and loving and laboring alongside Him and in His character is infinitely worth it. Jesus lived His sinless life as a Son of God. He took up a cross denying Himself to die so that your burden of sin could be lifted. And He was raised again from the dead to lift you with Him. So friend, come to Him. Lay down your burdens. Take His yoke upon you and follow Him. And know that if God begins this work of salvation in you today, as you trust Christ, you can be confident as Paul was, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. Because God always finishes what he starts. And he never, never, never fails to finish it perfectly. God is doing and will continue to do a work in the life of the saints and the body that is First Baptist West Albuquerque. It will not be easy but neither should we expect it to be. I am looking forward to the year ahead, the challenges that it will bring, the difficulty that we may face, the hard decisions we may have to make, the changes that we will adopt. And I'm looking forward to them with joy, 
Not because of the difficulty that we'll have to go through in going through all of those things, but with joy in knowing what the end result will be. More glory to God. More disciples made to follow Jesus. More of the power of the Holy Spirit working, living in us, changing us to be like Jesus Christ. I invite you, dear friend, at the end of this year to join me, to come with me as we embrace God's sanctifying work in the year ahead. Would you just take a moment and in silence reflect upon all that this verse implies for you and for your walk with Jesus, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And after a moment, I will dismiss us with a prayer from our Puritan friends, a prayer for the year's end. Let's reflect in silence just a moment.